Welcome to Insight into Teaching Intro Psychology, a McGraw-Hill informative audio series. These podcasts feature subject matter experts, instructors, and authors discussing psychology-related topics in higher education. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the second episode of Season 2 of the Insight into Teaching Psychology podcast. My name is A.J. LaFerrera, and today we will be discussing sensation and perception with three excellent instructors. Uh, Before we get going, why don't we start with some introductions on those joining us today. Jason, would you like to kick us off? Uh, Sure. Thanks, AJ, for having me, and thanks for hosting this. My name is Jason McCoy. I'm an instructor of psychology in Wilmington, North Carolina. I've been at Cape Fear Community College for nearly two decades, and I can honestly say that uh, I love teaching just as much today as I did when I first started two decades ago. Uh, I teach mostly introductory courses, uh, that's introductory psychology. Sensation and perception is a big part of my introductory psych courses, especially since so few of my colleagues will do it. I think they're intimidated by just the wealth of information that's available, um, and they fear that they're going to get paralyzed by indecision, and I have to try to tell them, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that you're going to be interested in, your students are going to be interested in, but I think it's worth it, and I hope we get to explore some of the reasons why it's so worth it today. Okay. Hi. My name is B. Alvarado. I am an instructor of psychology at Del Mar College. It's a two-year community college in South Texas. Um, The vast majority of my students are what's considered dual credit, or they are dually enrolled in college classes and in high school classes which means that if I choose to do a chapter like sensation and perception, I need to keep all of my examples young and fresh and relevant. And I noticed, as Jason was saying, that many of my colleagues don't like to tackle the sensation and perception chapter, and I find it to be one of the most intriguing and fun and surprising ones with my students. So I'm really excited about this podcast. And my name is Greg Feist, and I'm a professor of psychology at San Jose State University in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I'm also a co-author on the Intro Psych book, Psychology, Perspectives, and Connections. And I've been teaching intro, yeah, for, what, 25, 27 years now. And having a background in philosophy, I love sensation and perception. It's one of the most surprising and most interesting classes and for me, the most fun class. But it really comes down to, you know, reality and, and how we perceive reality and, of course, how we can't directly perceive reality. So probably one of the most fun classes I teach. Great. Well, this is some really good insight to get going here early. Let's start by jumping into that philosophical side of kind of evaluating the sensation and perception chapter. When you guys get started, what are your goals? What do you want students to take away from this chapter after you've gone through a lesson? To quote Bo Lotto, a neuroscientist and entrepreneur, I want students to know less after I teach something like sensation perception. And what I mean by that is I want them to uh, work with me for a couple of days going through some of the sensation perception content and begin to allow themselves to doubt, specifically doubt the nature of reality. So philosophically for me, 
I'm trying to imbue my students with some level of skepticism. Uh, and to this end, I believe that that will help them become better consumers of information and maybe become better human beings in the future. I do this, I do exactly that, but with a lot of visual imagery, especially in the first half of the first lecture. I have all these various hidden images, uh, embedded images, uh, illusions, and then I throw them up there and, you know, like a hidden woman lying down in a, a yard up against the tree covered in leaves, but you can't see her at all. And I say, okay, mm -hmm. can you find the woman? And then I go out into the class. I have a big class, 250 students, and, I, and once they, they puzzle and you see light bulbs going off, and then all of a sudden I go out there and I just pick some student who says they find it, and I have them take my pointer and point at it. And, and it's a really engaging way to bring home the point that what you see is not what you see, which, yeah, is a good way to introduce the, the fact that that's the way perception works. And, and there's a difference between sensation or sensory system and what our brain does with things. And so that's a it's really engaging, and it really brings home exactly that point that to question what we see is not what is necessarily there. And I think students get really engaged by that. But, it, but more importantly than engagement, it's a big philosophical, psychological principle that, that we perceive with our brain, not our sensory system. And so it's our brain that's being, you know, expecting to see what it sees and so on. So anyway, there's, yeah, there's, and that gets into critical thinking, critical evaluation of evidence, as Jason was saying. I think for me, uh, I have a far cheesier answer. Um, for me, my main goal is to kind of instill a sense of wonder um, in my students about how amazing, you know, the human body is and the senses that we have. Um, for example, one of the things that I like to do is have my students whip out their phones and use the camera on their phone to focus on an object near and far and see how long it takes the phone to make that adjustment and realize that, you know, your eye is doing that instantaneously for you, so fast that you don't even realize it. And then do that with every single sense. Great, so it sounds like you guys have varying degrees of, of the same goal, part of it to get your students to think critically, but also to instill this idea of wonder within them and curiosity, which is great. So when we talk about sensation and perception, there are a lot of topics within this chapter. So are there certain things that you spend more time on, certain topics or and or places that you just find that you don't have time and you don't cover? Well, I, I mainly focus on two of the senses, the two main ones that I think it's fair to say that humans are biased towards. Mostly vision. I spend probably two-thirds of my lecture on vision, uh, just the principles of perception and, and how the eye works. You know, I, I start off with the eye and the Roy G. Biv. And actually getting to the point earlier, one of the points I really like to make is a comparative one, which is that, you know, when you understand that we just hear and see and smell and taste and feel certain ranges of sensory experiences, you know right away that we're not perceiving reality as it is. You know, we only see the, the visible light spectrum and we have cones sensitive to, you know, only three different wavelengths of light. 
but other animals have different sensory systems. They hear different pitches, they see different ranges of and kinds of colors. And so that puts us in perspective of, you know, again, the, the difference between the physical world as it exists and, and our perception of it. So I spend a lot of time on the visual system and then hearing as well. So I don't really get too much into, unfortunately, into taste and pain and smell. Yeah, yeah I need to I, second all of that. <laughs> yeah, I, I spend a lot of time trying to encourage my students to think about how they would put um, their beliefs about the nature of reality to the test. So I start by asking them if they believe that when they got up this morning, uh, what befell their eyes and what they could hear was reality. And of course, everyone says, yeah. Ask them, how do they know that? And they say, well, that's because I opened my eyes and I saw what I expected to see. And sort of piggybacking off that, I say, well, what would happen if you expected not to see that and you did? Or if you didn't expect to see something and you did? And they all believe that they would be hallucinating, that there would be something wrong with them. Uh, that's when I showed them an interesting interactive demonstration by Harvard professors Chris Shepherd and Daniel Simon. I'm sure my colleagues here are familiar with the invisible gorilla or monkey business illusion. Mm -hmm. uh, this, this illusion or some uh, derivation has been around for a while, but essentially what happens is you, you ask the class to focus on how many times the people in one colored jersey, say white or black, pass the ball. So their expectation is that there's a, a goal here. I've got to focus my attention on the players in, say, white, uh, keenly become aware of how many times they pass the ball, and then at the end, the assumption is there's going to be a test. The professor's going to stop the video and ask, how many times did the players in white pass the ball? And to, um, to their elation, most of my students get it right. It's, say, 16 passes. But then I ask them, how many of you guys follow the gorilla? And, of course, the entire class explodes, you know, in laughter. And most people say, what do you mean gorilla? Are you crazy? And I back the video up. And this time I say, instead of counting the basketball passes, just watch it normally like you would a sitcom. And what you see is about halfway through the video, a guy dressed in a gorilla suit walks in the middle of the screen, right in the middle of the people passing the basketball, sort of pats his chest with his hands, and walks off camera. My students are very surprised that they missed that gorilla the first time. And I asked them to sort of comment on what that means about the nature of reality. Yeah, actually, there's a wonderful, well, it's actually done by National Geographic, and it's called Brain Games. This is from the pilot series, and they have a whole section on on exactly this, inattentional blindness and change blindness and other things using the, yeah, Dan Simons. They do it in, in Las Vegas, though. They have a slight variation on it. They're doing it live in front of an audience in Las Vegas and, and in the context of all this magic, which is basically other examples of how we can uh, have our attention focused on one thing and we completely are blind and ignore and don't perceive other things. So not only is there that example, but there's also, uh, yeah, pickpocket doing the same kinds of things. He just is manipulating attention uh, bottom up and top down to focus 
away from the fact that he's stealing watches and phones and scarves, right, and, and sometimes eyeglasses right off people's bodies, and they're not perceiving it. So yeah, exactly. And I think that's one of the most profound examples. And I mean, if you really take that seriously, it really, I mean, we don't want to question reality to the point where we become psychotic. <laughs> you know, uh, there is a point to having stability in our perception. But on the other hand, I think Jason's example of, of having people wake up and realize that they see what they expect to see is exactly the point, that we see what we expect to see and we don't see what we don't expect to see, and so we miss all kinds of things. And that can be a very profound insight for these students, I think. All right, well, you guys have steered this conversation towards the practical application side of things with those two examples, which I think is great. Why don't we keep going down that path? So. We shared, you guys shared a couple of examples from within the vision section of the sensation and perception chapters. Let's dig into that a little bit more. Are there other examples that you guys are using in the classroom to help your students understand the vision content? So one of the issues that I think a lot of students have when you're coming into a chapter like this is understanding the biology that's behind, uh, you, let's say the eye, since we're talking about vision. You can't just pull your eyeball out and take a look at it. And I don't have a lab, so there's not models available for the students. So I have to kind of work with what we've got. And one of my favorite and simplest things to do when I'm talking about, especially the structures of the eye, when you get to like the pupil and the iris and how they function, is just to turn off all the lights in the classroom and have the students completely you know, shutter their eyes, cover them, get, make it as dark as possible. Um, and I'll do that for a few seconds. And then I tell them, now you're going to, you're going to team up with a person who's, you know, to your right or your left. And what you guys are going to do is you're going to gaze deeply into each other's eyes, focusing specifically on the pupils and the iris. And when I turn those lights on, open your eyes and see what happens. And inevitably, it's just everyone just bursts into laughter. But then they want to do it again and again and again because they're actually seeing the movement of, of the muscles and they're seeing the mechanics and it makes it a little bit more real than just saying, here's a picture of the eye, here's your iris, here's your pupil. And that's one of the things I love to do when it comes to the vision section. That's great. Actually, yeah, I wish I could do that, although with a class of 250, it's not quite as, it's a big auditorium. But it's, I personally get into, I, I do have the, you know, the image of the eye, the different parts have to talk about vision, you know, that way starting off. But then I get into color perception, and I really get into the fact that we have these three cones, three different kinds of cones in the back of our eye, in the retina. And then again, I, I compare it to different kinds of animals that, you know, that we're trichromatic. We have three cones that are sensitive to different wavelengths, but other animals, most mammals are only dichromatic. They only have two cones that are sensitive. And, and then you have some insects and fishes and birds that are tetrachromatic. They have four. They also see in the ultraviolet range. And then the fascinating example there is that there's a small subset of women, they're always women, who are also tetrachromatic that can actually see four, they have cones that are sensitive to four wavelengths of light, including ultraviolet, and they often tend to be artistic, uh, these women. So I get into those kinds of things, and then I show an example of 
a simulated example of what tetrachromatic vision would be like, like if you were a bird and had tetrachromatic vision. Uh, here's an image. It's just a simulated. But anyway, so I try to get into those kinds of things. Again, pointing out and trying to bring make real that we're just one animal that has a certain kind of sensory system and that dictates how we perceive color in this case. And that's always, I find it fascinating. Uh, and I have two sons who are both colorblind, so I then get into that. You know, well, what about when some people's mm -hmm. cones don't quite work in all three categories? And that's what colorblindness is. And, and then I show examples of, of that and, and so on. So I mean, it's not quite as hands-on as B's example, but it still kind of brings home the, the issue of the limits of our perceptual system. Yeah, those are both great examples. I find that by helping students make connections uh, between psychology and biology, it helps normalize some of these things or helps make some of these esoteric concepts a little more palatable. Um, I like to talk about neurological conditions like synesthesia, uh, the so-called mm -hmm. sensory missing. And what I tend to do sometimes to normalize something like this uh, is I, I get them to think about very practical, ordinary, sort of everyday things that they experience. Now, now before I tell you the example, I'll, I'll mention that synesthesia is something that's been recorded in humans for at least 100 years, and there's been a lot of speculation as to what's going on. But fundamentally, one type of synesthesia is the color uh, number or color letter synesthesia. And basically, a person who has synesthesia would look at uh, black letters on a white screen, but they would get the perception that maybe each of these letters were a different color. Now, they're not actually saying that the colors are on the screen. They know that's not reality but they still get this rush, this, this qualitative experience of color every time they see an R or a, the number three. And synesthetes, as they're called, will oftentimes have, or most oftentimes have, different alphabets, different color alphabets. So one synesthete could argue with another about what color the R is. One might say it's yellow, the other might say it's pink. Now, most students think this is just insane. You know, they think, again, that these people must be crazy. And so I can show them some of these experiments done by V.S. Ramachandran out in California where Greg is, not, not at San Jose, but I believe he's at San Diego or something like that now. Yeah, yeah, and um, yeah. he demonstrates that there are changes or differences in the brains of the synesthete versus the normal uh, participant. Now, to come sort of full circle, to get my students to normalize this, I ask them to think about metaphor. And I ask them to think about things like shark cheese. I say, how many of you guys under, or have, have ever heard or referred to cheese as being sharp? And all of them have heard of this, of course. And I say, but does that make sense? If you're communicating to someone who's never had cheese that what they're about to eat is sharp, would they put it in their mouth? Because sharp <laughs> denotes that it's going to be painful. And, of course, my students laugh and say, no, 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 it's just a figure of speech. And I say, well, I think the brain evolved the capacity for metaphor. I think metaphor helps tell stories. I think it helps us communicate otherwise complex ideas. And so maybe synesthesia is just the brain sort of along the continuum a little ways, right? So all of us sort of can understand synesthesia even if we don't see colors every time we see black letters or numbers. That's a really fun yeah. example. Yeah, that is a good example. Now, it's interesting because I, 
I love the topic of synesthesia. I actually talk about it in a few other chapters, though. Uh, that's making me realize, God, you know, this is that would be a really good thing to bring in here too. That's you know, good, Greg, when you were when you're talking about um, color vision. Yeah. Um, do you find that students have some difficulty understanding how cones can be specialized in that way? You know, I don't think they do. I mean, I don't get too much into the theories, which are a little abstract. I kind of just try to point out, and I have these graphs that there are, you know, some of these cones really are just sensitive to different wavelengths of light. So I put it in a pretty practical level. And then I have the red, green, and blue wavelengths across the spectrum and just showing here some are this sensitive and some are that sensitive and some are this one. And so, and then I have this graph of, you know, a dog and a human and a pigeon with different profiles of sensitivity. Um, and I think they grasped that. I mean, um, mm -hmm. again, getting into the trichromatic and the uh, theories and, and the opponent process, that gets a little abstract, uh, especially the opponent process. So I, I don't really get into that too much, but I think they're okay with that, actually. I have to agree because in order for me, I feel like to get the point across, I actually do, there is a free um, vision test for color, for color blindness that you can do right. online. And what I do is I have my male students, I ask my females, you know, because of the genetics of it, I ask my females to refrain from answering and ask only the males to respond. You know, as soon as you see the number or the letter, just shout it out. And inevitably, you get about five examples in when you hear a male voice go, what are you guys talking about? And then um, all of a sudden, it's a huge discussion in class as to, oh, this poor baby. And I'm like, no, 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 no. He's the same person who's perceiving things in the same way as he did when he walked in. Right. So then we can, you know, shift over to perception. Well, and again, I, I because both of my sons, I have two sons, and they're both colorblind, and I get into the genetics of it, and as it turns out, my wife's family, you know, she inherited that. And But I, I get into the fact that, you know, look, first of all, they're not colorblind. They, they are simply, and there's different gradations of it. Their teachers used to think they literally couldn't see color, like when they were in elementary school. And I was like, no, that's a real misperception of what colorblindness is. Colorblindness is just, like for, in their case, the reds are just a little muted. They see reds as kind of brownish red, uh, typically. And that's all it is. So it really doesn't affect them much at all. Yeah, so I also tell the story of how I found out with my oldest when he was three, I was putting on a purple Barney outfit on him, and he said blue. And I was like, oh, well, that's kind of purple. And I just thought it was a cognitive thing. And then I took out something that was clearly to me blue, said, look, this is blue and that's purple. And he didn't see the difference. And all of a sudden I realized, ah, purple. Purple just has red, is blue with a little bit of red in it. So if you can't see red very well, you're going to confuse purple and blue. And that was, and then I tested him a little bit later with that, the same test that you're talking about, you know, once he could name the, the numbers and determine that he really was colorblind. But I just used that, in this case, this personal example of my sons. And that kind of helped bring it home too. Yeah, that's, that's a great example, Greg. I, I, too, try to dispel myths associated with, you know, the way people think about, again, the nature of reality or their perception. And you're, you're right. You're absolutely right. Students think that if a person is color weak, that means they're color blind. And if they're blind, that means they can't see anything. And of course, I bring in a lot of examples to sort of 
disabuse them of that. Uh, one of the things I like to talk about to help them appreciate uh, this point is to get them to think about like a bloodhound. I said, you know, a bloodhound dog can smell extraordinarily well. They can take one little whiff of air through their nose and pull in large numbers of molecules. And from those large number of molecules, their brain can examine, you know, the nature of reality. They could, the bloodhound knows exactly who's walked by, how long ago they've walked by. The bloodhound could smell things miles and miles away. And imagine what the bloodhound must think about your paltry sense of smell. You know, the bloodhound <laughs> must feel really sorry for you uh, because despite standing in a room, and, and taking in huge whiffs of air, you know, you don't smell literally what's right before you. I, I know this well because my mom used to come into my room when I was a teenager, and, you know, it was like a truck hit her in the face. And she would say, you don't smell that? And I'd say, what? She'd say, you really need to clean your room. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Those were a lot of really great examples. I think we hit some vision. We hit synesthesia. What we haven't talked about too much is the hearing part of the sensation and sensation and perception chapter. So when you guys get to that portion, again, are there examples that you're using to help make these concepts more concrete for your students? Absolutely. One of my rules in class is to never use your cell phone unless it's for a very good reason. And of course, I'm going to be the judge of whether it's a good reason. And I tell them that one one way to um, uh, regulate yourself would just be to wait until I ask you to pull them out. And I said, of course, that's unless you have a special magic ringtone. And they look at me like I'm crazy again, and I say, you know, a mosquito ringtone. And, of course, they look puzzled. Uh, and I go to my computer, and I pull up some uh, mosquito ringtone. There's a bunch of these on the Internet, and I just start playing them in sequence. And what's interesting is uh, some students will put their fingers in their ears immediately. Others will, will look at those students and say, you know, what's going on? And then I, of course, mm -hmm. go back and tell them that I'm playing different frequencies, different pitch sound waves, and some of these higher frequency sound waves, um, younger people are probably going to hear them, but the older people in the class probably will not hear them. And this has to do with the aging of the biological process of the inner ear. Like we're going to lose sensitivity to certain sound waves over time. And now, the beautiful thing for you guys is that if you can find a frequency sound wave to make your ringtone or make your notifications tone, some of your teachers may not be able to hear it. You know, it's interesting. Yeah, I was going to say, I get into exactly that, except I do it a little bit differently. I, well, first of all, I get into the three different physical properties of, of waves, you know, their, their length, their amplitude, and their um, purity. Yeah, that's what it is, purity, complexity. And then I get into a, there's a web page uh, that I pull up that has frequencies from 50 hertz all the way to 25,000 hertz. And the 50 hertz is really cool because it's super, and I'm in, again in this big auditorium, and it sounds like, you know, these cars that go around playing nothing but bass. And it's a really cool kind of soothing, but really, really deep and rich sound. And then I go up to, you know, 7,000, and that's already really high. And then I start getting up to, into the, yeah, the mosquito ringtone of 15, 16, 17,000. And some people can't hear it at all, and I'm, I'm barely hearing it. But yeah, I get into exactly uh, these real demonstrations in this big auditorium, and, and it really brings home, you know, not only our species limits, 
but also individual differences within humans. And, and, and even within the same age, some of them can hear it and some of them can't. And then, yeah, the same point that Jason was making, that we start to lose pitch perception with age. So, yeah, so that's a really engaging way of, I think, bringing home what our ears are really doing. Yeah, I have to agree with that. Um, one of the things that I like to do with hearing is um, take advantage of the cocktail party phenomenon. Um, uh, even though I have to tell my students, I'm like, I know you don't know what a cocktail party is, and you would <laughs> never go to one. Um, but we, one of the things I like to do, again, is when you're getting the students thinking about the mechanics, thinking, pay, paying attention to something they've never paid attention to before. Um, how is it that we can locate the source of a sound? I mean, it's amazing that we can hear things and that we can understand them, but how do we even know where to locate that person in a room? That's kind of amazing. So then what I'll do is, again, have them cover their, cover their eyes, and I'll continue lecturing, and I'll tell them, okay, point to where the voice is coming from. And at a certain point, I'll stand up on a desk in the back of the room, and they're all pointing at me, and I said, okay, now get into a group, and everybody explain how you were able to do that. What did your brain have to do for you to be able to do that? Yeah, I was going to say, listening to B's example about the cocktail party effect, I just, I started thinking about um, just how easy it is to make connections between ideas and across chapters even, which I think is one of the, the more higher level things that I'm really looking for my students to do. And when she's talking about the cocktail party effect, I'm thinking, of course, about consciousness as well and how just naturally the two, perception and consciousness, fit together. You know, that right. could be an entirely different podcast in another film. And that's where I talk about synesthesia more, is like uh, hallucinogenic drugs basically induce synesthesia. When you guys were talking about the inattention effects, and, and I found that really hilarious because I actually cover that in the memory chapter talking about you know, sensory memory and that it's so small in capacity. Well, that's why, yeah, making connections is a, I think that one of the best things that students can start to see is that these things are not isolated bits of information and ideas and topics that they really are integrated across being human. Yeah, so, Greg, if, if, if only there were a book out there about making yeah. connections and using perspective, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, that's All right. So that was, you know, another set of really great examples. Thank you guys for, for sharing those with everybody. I want to kind of shift the conversation a little bit to higher, broader thinking research that you guys have come across. Anything good worth sharing with our audience? Yeah, I, I recently came across something that um, I'm, I'm really excited to share with you guys today. A gentleman named Ian Morgan, he's a cell biologist in Australia, interested in a variety of things, but well, one thing in particular he's interested in is myopia, nearsightedness. And in, you know, in some parts of the world, nearsightedness is more of a problem than others. And if uh, it's a certain type of nearsightedness or if it goes untreated, particularly in children, it can sort of exacerbate things and even lead to blindness. So if he's poking around in the research looking uh, for any kind of neurological basis to nearsightedness, he comes upon some research on dopamine and now, if you remember, this is the neurochemical uh, in your brain and body that sort of acts as a pleasure accountant in, in one respect, and it has a lot to do with movement in another. But the point of Dr. Morgan's research is that 
he started questioning whether or not there was any way you could maybe prevent blindness um, by changing the environment. He realized that light, uh, specifically sunlight, encourages dopamine in the retina. And he sort of went backwards and started looking epidemiologically at groups of people who had the highest rates of myopia. And it turns out they were not outside as much, particularly the children. So his research is suggesting that something as simple maybe as recess in schools. I know recess has become a political sort of hot-button issue these days, particularly in America. Um, he wonders aloud if something like recess could actually reduce the frequency or even intensity of childhood blindness. And did it? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we're, we're, it's so nascent, we're in the sort of beginning stages of this kind of research. He stumbled upon these connections just last year. Uh, that was when it was, it was published, I believe, in 2018. So this is very new. Wow. All right, thank you for sharing that great research example, Jason. I think that's really interesting. One thing I did want to get to that we had uh, briefly talked about earlier was uh, some of the controversies between the color of a dress or the words that we're hearing. B, I know that was something that you said that you use in the classroom. You want to talk a little bit about those? Oh, absolutely. One of the things that my students uh, absolutely love to talk about is anytime there's one of the is it laurel or is it yanny or is the dress blue and black or is it gold and white? And I tell them, I, you're going to get the answer today. And everyone comes in ready to fight. They're like, I got in a fight with my grandma about this. That's a white dress, you know? And it's less important to me that we understand whether it is actually blue and black, which just in case you were wondering, it is actually a blue and black dress. But if we get that concept that you know, color constancy has a role in it, and again, reinforcing the idea that your perception is your reality, and you can't force someone who sees it white and gold to see it blue and black, or vice versa, that this is just something that your brain is doing, and it's either compensating for the color change with the flash, or it's not. And then you can then tie that into Laurel and Yanny. You can talk about wavelengths. But when it comes to the end of the day, you are talking about a perceptual issue. And what that means for every person is slightly different. The sensation portion is the same, but the perception portion is going to be up to your own brain. Yeah, that's, that's exactly the sensation, you know, things hitting our sensory systems, but then our brains making sense of it. And that's really what it comes down to. Uh, and I hope that makes people a little more tolerant of other people's perceptions and of being a little more humbled about their own, that, you know, it's equally valid to, to perceive this one way or the other. Does that mean you guys can tell us whether or not Grover actually said the F word or not? <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. All right. Um, well, guys, thank you all for taking part in this conversation. Before we sign off, I do want to give each of you an opportunity to share some parting thoughts about the sensation and perception chapter. Who would like to kick us off? Okay, I'll just jump in here on this one. When it comes to sensation and perception, it's very easy to get bogged down with, well, I don't really understand uh, amplitude and frequency, but you are the owner of a human body. And as an owner of a human body, 
it's really good to have a user's manual. And I kind of try to come to the sensation and perception chapter as part of your owner's manual. These are the, these are the features you were born with. These are the ones that have developed. And how you understand the world is directly related to how you grew up in the circumstances. And just, I always keep coming back to, you know, perception is reality, perception is reality. Or uh, as Greg has mentioned a few times, what is reality even? Yeah, and that's the big takeaway message that I always bring home. And that's one reason, again, why I really like this chapter is it really gets at this very fundamental issue that philosophers have been dealing with for thousands of years is the fact that there is a reality out there, and yet because we have bodies and all animals have bodies, we're only going to perceive certain aspects of it. And we have to be clear that what we are perceiving is not the way the world really is, but just our perceptions of it. So I think that's a very big and profound idea. One of the reasons I teach sensation and perception is because this chapter and, and the content therein gives me an unprecedented opportunity to get students to challenge their intuitions. And I tell them that intuition is a very powerful tool, and for most of the history of this earth, animals who were at any level of consciousness probably only could rely on intuition. But we have newer, more developed faculties today as humans, and we're allowed now to think beyond our own emotions and our own uh, sort of ideas of what is real. And so sensation perception gives students the opportunity to challenge these intuitions. They can see in real time that what they believe could not possibly be true. And that's why I love it. Well, I think that's a great place to sign off. Uh, Greg, B, Jason, I want to thank the three of you for sharing some insights into how you teach sensation and perception. And for everybody that has listened, I want to thank you guys for joining us, and we'll see you guys next time. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This has been a McGraw-Hill production. Thank you for listening.